Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February 3rd, 2017. This is episode 1945 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for the monster show of the week, and we have the expert council Q&A. I got a bunch of stuff for you today. Here's what you'll be hearing today. We have a question on beyond botulism, other canning risks for Erica Strauss, potatoes and sweet potatoes and the differences in their cultivation for Nick Ferguson. Upgrading your home electrical system for Stephen Harris. Renewing land that's been clear-cut for Darby Simpson. Cover cropping for hard K, hard K, hard clay problems. And trying to produce edible production at the same time for Jeff Lawton. Dealing with urinary tract infections when there's no doctor for Doc Bones. And a question, are we all volunteers now, or should we be? For me, Jack, not only a question, more of an anecdotal story where someone went out and tried what I suggested last week. Try talking to people about anarchism. Try talking to people about voluntarism. Do it with the same people and see if you get different reactions. A day apart, where do you hear this? And it has me thinking... Has me thinking with my, my thinking hat going buzz, buzz, buzz. It also has me thinking about new ways to explain the concept of voluntarism to this audience. Some of you that are like, that'll never work in a way that maybe will make more sense. All of that and more today before we get into it. Let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family. This is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. There's only one official Berkey Guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number is 21 and a dot com. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Agenda Printworks. They provide handmade, custom screen printing, and outdoor-inspired clothing. Jacob is a TSP listener who has been running his business from home for 10 years. Go to AgendaPrintWorks.com for high-quality custom printing. And, of course, you can find them at the TSP Business Directory, and there will be a link to their listing in today's show notes. Remember, for as little as 5 bucks every six months, you can get your business listed in the TSP Business Directory and get exposure to the entire TSP community at TSPBiz.com. All right, so let's take a look at the year that was the episode Um I've had a lot of, like, how do I choose what to read in these last few ones? Because World War II is going on, and I've been reading all the bullet points for World War II. There's a massive amount of information here from Alex Trug in that format today. There's also two segments. One of the segments is the disaster of living through a nuclear blast and the flight into the mushroom cloud. I'm going to read the disaster of living through a nuclear blast because I think it has a very important message for us in today's world where we might think, well, if the if the luff balloons go, we're all dead anyway, and it, it may not be the case, depending on where you are. Um, I do want to cover some of the other bullet points, though. Notable births this year, 
Chris Matthews and George Pataki, uh, both living. Vince Foster, who is yet another dead friend of Bill and Hillary Clinton, who died in 1993, born this year. And in entertainment, uh, all living. Rod Stewart, Neil Young, Eric Clapton, Bob Seger, Don McLean, and on and on and on. Uh, also, Steve Martin was born this year. Uh, John Lithgow, the voice of uh, Lord Farquaad and Shrek. Uh, and uh, Goldie, Goldie Sean, I think... He actually means Goldie Hawn. Maybe that's a typo there. Uh, and more and more and more. Uh, this year in film, we have The Bells of St. Mary's, starring Bing Crosby and Ingrid Bergman. We have The Lost Weekend, starring Ray Ray Midland as an alcoholic writer. And we have Spellbound, which is an Alfred Hitchcock thriller. This year in music, Sentimental Journey by Doris Day, Till the End of Time by Perry Como, and There, I've Said It Again by Van Monroe. In other neat news, Arthur C. Clarke suggests geosynchronous satellites be developed for communications. Hmm, those wacky sci-fi guys. George Orwell publishes Animal Farm. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others, mocking Stalin. Orwell, oral penicillin is developed. And Norbert Weiner suggests that one day we will develop a collective memory machine that will exist as a box on our desk. Where do these guys get these crazy ideas? Uh, and then there's the whole World War II in review. I'm going to leave it to you if you want to read that today, because I want to read to you the disaster of living through a nuclear blast. Miyoko Matsubara is 12 years old. She's working with 350 other students from the girls' commercial school in Hiroshima, Japan, clearing a lot for construction when the pika, known as the flash, occurs. 300 students turn toward the Flash, signing their own death warrants. Miyoko does something different. She hides her face and ducks. When she awakens, everything is gone, including the dark dress she had been wearing. This may be one of the reasons she's still alive, since dark colors absorb light. And where is she? Where is everything? All she sees is rubble. She is on fire, and she bats away the flames. Pieces of her flesh fall off. For the next three days, she is near death, but she will recover. After a, after a fashion, she will be disfigured and, frankly, shunned by her fellows. They fear they might catch the radiation sickness, too. She will find comfort amongst the Christians, and she will live, at least until 2007, which is the date up for the article on the story she wrote about her experience of surviving a nuclear blast. My take by Alex Shrugged. Those who died in Hiroshima bombing died fairly quickly. Those who survived provide a lesson for us today. Exposure to radiation is not necessarily a death sentence. Many who manage to survive the initial exposure will live quite a long time. Months? Very likely. Years? Almost certainly. 90 years old? No guarantees, but you must be prepared to survive. Today we think if an atomic bomb hits, we will all be dead, so it won't matter. But very likely we won't be dead, so it will matter. I don't want to frighten anyone. On the list of things to worry about, unless I'm living down the street from a nuclear power plant, it's not a priority. It might make my wife feel better that I have some meds available to help with radiation exposure, but this is as close to the full value of such meds for me that I'm going to get. That is, my wife feels better, not that it might do me any good. There are some more immediate issues I may take care of before I address the nuclear disaster. I chose that one just to kind of point out this. And if you read the other one, you'll, you'll hear a story of another person who survived, a young person who was 275 yards from ground zero on the second atomic bomb. 
that we can survive nuclear blast, and it is something to at least keep somewhere in the back shelf. It's pretty low down on the order of probability, but it's pretty high up on the impact scale. I also, while I didn't read the uh, the bullet points, I wanted to point out that when people think of World War II and the uh, the most awful thing that we on the side of the Allies did, we think of dropping these two bombs. And in the bullet points, you if you read them, you'll read about the firebombing of Dresden and many other German cities that were firebombed. And this was done in the waning days of the war when the writing was on the wall, and this attacked civilian targets. And you'll also read about the firebombing of Tokyo. And I remember an interview with Robert McNamara of, of the Vietnam War fame, right, who said flat out, had we lost World War II, The firebombing that we did in Japan, we would have been tried as war criminals, and any reasonable court would have convicted us. And it's easy to look back at that and think, God, we were so awful. It's also easy to look back that far into the past and not understand the mentality and the death that was going on in World War II and what men will do in war that they would never consider doing in peace. It's a complex thing, our history, and as we look back at it, we do well to remember that we weren't the ones that had to make the decisions at the time. We are the ones that can make the decisions, though, in the future. My take by Jack Spierko. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short, And you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free ebooks, including Planting Trees the Low Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an EPAC Kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponic Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings, and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free ebooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. And with that, let's go ahead and uh, take your first question. This is a question uh, for... Erica Strauss on uh, canning, specifically high acid canning, and since we don't have to worry about botulism there, is there anything else we have to worry about? And would we know if it was there? Botulism can be a silent killer. If we had a problem with our acid canning and it didn't work right or someone wrong, is there any silent danger there, or would we know it's bad because it's bad? Erica, please take it away. Hey, TSP, Erica here, author of The Hands-On Home, calling in to answer Joe's question on high-acid canning risks that are not botulism. Kind of an interesting question. Joe asks, what are the primary risks and things to watch out for with high-acid canning beyond botulism? If my high-acid project fails, will my jam or applesauce or canned pears be moldy or fermented? Is there a chance I could open a jar of canned high-acid fruit that looks, smells, and tastes fine and yet is still harmful? 
The reason I ask is some older methods of canning fruits involve just cooking your fruit, heating your lids and jars, packing hot, and then turning everything over for two minutes to be sure to kill any bugs that may have floated in. I like this method because water bath recipes always overcook the fruit, resulting in a blander and presumably lower nutrition jam or fruit. Even if this isn't good for fruit pieces, is it okay for things processed in liquid form, such as jam or juice, since all the liquid is boiling when packed? So Joe's question here basically boils down to, hey, Erica, if I disregard all the modern advice and can high acid fruit using old, no longer recommended canning methods, am I going to die? Well, no, probably not. Not unless you're more than a little careless. Everything I know of what can go wrong in a canning jar that is not botulism does make itself pretty well known. And I'm going to cover the three main things to know about in just a second. But first, here's the general concern. The method you described is usually called open kettle canning. And the reason that this method of pouring hot, high acid, open kettle canning food uh, into the jar and then sealing and flipping the jar is no longer recommended is that the food, because it's not heated after sealing, it's possible that molds or yeast may have entered the jar while you are filling the jar and that these might not be killed. Also, this method does not drive out excess air from the jar as efficiently as an actual processing step, so it doesn't produce as strong a seal on the jar, and this means there is a greater possibility of your seals failing. And finally, and I think this is a big thing, there's a real chance of user error with this method because it relies on absolutely everything from the food to the jars to the lids being boiling hot and the person doing the canning moving really fast before anything can cool off. So what you are looking at as possible failure points if you attempt this open kettle canning with your strongly high acid foods is possible mold spore growth, possible growth of microorganisms, uh, possible yeast action, um, which could lead to fermentation, or possible loss of your product because your seals fail. So let's break down each potential issue with the open kettle method. And then, you know, you can make the judgment if the convenience advantage is worth the small risk for you. Risk number one, molds. If you skip the processing step, there is a risk that you could get some mold growth in your canned foods. There's both the ooh gross factor of mold, and then there's the serious issue that molds can, some molds can raise the pH of the food, make it less strongly acid. So worst case scenario here, mold lowers the acid content of the product enough to put your item at risks for something like, you know, botulism, the really scary thing, or other bacterial spoilage. So okay, how do you deal with this potential bad outcome. Well, pretty easy. You check all your product for mold. And if you see any mold, any mold, even a little dot on your home canned food, you throw it away. And I mean, especially if you're going to be, you know, a little more, should we call it free thinking in your method of processing your canned foods, you really need to be alert to these possible consequences and do keep your eye out for signs of spoilage like mold growth. So skipping the old method of just scooping off surface mold and continuing to eat from what was underneath, don't do that, just chuck the whole jar. But assuming that you don't eat from a jar that contains mold, honestly, hard to see where there could be a health concern. 
Okay, so risk number two, fermentation. Biggest risk with airborne yeast taking up residence in an unprocessed jar of, say, you know, thin preserves or juice or applesauce um, would be fermentation. And here's what might happen if you get fermentation in your jar. Probably the biggest risk is actually that your your jar could explode. If you store your jar with the ring on and fermentation happens and pressure builds up, you could get a weird sort of bottle bomb in your cupboard. But beyond that, if you see moving bubbles in a sealed jar, if you open a jar and it doesn't just do an unsealing hiss, but if it sort of bubbles up or has foam at the top, if it seems like it's acting more like soda or beer when you open it, then you are probably looking at a fermentation quality failure. Um, and then if you miss kind of any external signs and you taste something from a jar and it tastes whiny, um, like it's got sort of an alcoholic background, or if it has a fizzy quality, almost like a little bit of a pop rock kind of thing, you're probably dealing with something that's had some fermentation. With fermentation like this, and, and this is like an unplanned ferment, right? Not a delicious salt brined lacto fermented vegetable that we're all for, um, but this spontaneous ferment from wild yeast spores throw away the food. Um, the issue here is, again, quality. Taste would probably be really funky. As far as I know, and based on everything I've read, a fermentation like that isn't going to make you sick, but it should make it very obvious that you don't want to eat or drink whatever is in your jar. So number three potential issue, bacterial growth. Um, there are a huge number of possible bacterial contaminants out there, but the vast majority are killed by boiling temperatures. I only know one major bacterial contaminant in canned foods beyond botulism that you should be aware of and preserve against, and that's something called flat sour. The bacteria that causes flat sour are referred to as thermophilic, meaning they really like heat, and they're basically a fermentation in the jar but without an off-gassing component. So the food tastes sour, but it stays flat, i.e. non-carbonated, not bubbly, which is why this is called flat sour. Bad news. Flat sour makes your canned food taste gross, and you can't tell it's in there until you open the jar. But good news, flat sour isn't a significant risk with high acid foods. It's more a problem with borderline and low acid foods like tomatoes, corn, and peas. Better news, flat sour is a risk mostly when canned foods are allowed to stay warm for too long in the jar, usually after processing. And if anything, your jars are going to be, you know, hot for less time than we would like. So all in all, based on your description, pretty much no real risk of flat sour. And best you, best news yet, um, even with all that, flat sour is just gross in flavor. It's not actually harmful to your health. So Jack knows I roll pretty conservative on my food processing advice, but I also do like to know why the rules are the way they are. And I looked at every type of common foodborne illness I could find, and the only thing really associated with home canning is botulism. I'm sending Jack a link to the FDA to add to the show notes today that is a chart of the most common foodborne diseases in the U.S. And Joe, you can look at this chart yourself, and what you will find is that the only canning-associated illness that the FDA highlights is, again, botulism. So, Joe, are you going to die if you use open kettle for strong, high-acid foods, especially jams or jellies? Well, no, not unless you ignore signs of failure in your finished product. Like I said, there are actually very few things that will go wrong in a legit high-acid canning jar that won't be fairly obvious if you look at the jar carefully. So, 
Look, if you're going to choose to use the open kettle method, please do it right. Um, use this method for high acid and high sugar products like jam and jellies. These products boil hotter than non-high sugar products like your pears or your applesauce. So they're a safer bet for skipping that separate processing step. And what I mean by that is the jelling point for jam is 220 degrees at sea level. So your jam at the jelling point is at a temperature above the boiling point of water. This high sugar concentration in the jam and jelly also retards microbial growth just as an ingredient. So you've got some sort of safety margin when you're talking about high acid and high sugar product that you don't have in the same way when you're talking about, you know, pears or peaches or applesauce. And I would really advise only doing open kettle when an equivalent approved recipe calls for a processing time of five minutes or less. That will really help with the risks from mold and fermentation stuff. And I would strongly discourage you from trying this with something like the applesauce, which is thicker and usually not an added sugar product and calls for a longer processing time. And please never, ever, ever go open kettle on borderline or low acid foods like tomatoes or vegetables. Okay? Okay. Also, If you're going to do this, make sure you're doing it right. You know, you need really boiling hot products, sterile piping hot jars, sterile piping hot lids, and you need to work quickly in your filling and your lidding jars so nothing cools down. And then finally, I would say do keep an eye out for mold and don't mess around with that. Um, store your jars without the rings on or with the rings on only loosely so that there, if there is something that goes wrong and it's an off-gassing problem, a fermentation problem, you don't run into exploding jars in your cupboard. And then do check your seals because um, your seals aren't going to be as strong with this method. So you're going to probably have a higher failure rate and you're going to want to check periodically and pull any jars where the seals have popped so you can discard them. Well, okay, Joe, I hope this has helped you make an informed decision for your own canning. Um, I wasn't able to find as much to scare you with as I hoped I might be able to. I really do like to steer people to the approved techniques for this kind of stuff. But in the case of high acid and especially high sugar products, you're, yeah, you're not going to die. <laughs> So, okay, friends out there in TSB land, this has been Erica for the Expert Council. Thanks so much for your wonderful questions. Please do keep them coming, and I will chat with you guys in a couple of weeks. Bye. Love hearing from Erica. She's just awesome, and she's such a wealth of knowledge. We're so fortunate to have her as part of our Expert Council. Um, if you guys have questions for Erica, remember, just like everybody else, just send them to the Survival Podcast or to the Survival. Send them to Jack at the Survival Podcast dot com. Put TSPC Expert in the subject line. And let me know your questions for Erica. It's really important that when you send me a question, that you say my question is for so and so in the the blank. When I get really busy, guys, sometimes I see a question that says Expert TSP Expert in the subject line. I just throw it in the Expert Council folder. And uh, when I go to draw up the document every month for all the expert council members, I search for them by name and I filter them that way. And if you say, send it to whichever expert council member that you think is best, I may not find it. I may not even consider it, not because I'm not willing to do it, but because just you got to get so much stuff done. So, you know, Erica, Nick, whoever it is you have the question for, tell me who it's for. I'm more likely to uh, to end up using it. And remember, you can see all the expert council members. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, and on the About tab, if you hover there, you'll see a thing that says Meet the Expert Council. 
And uh, you can take a look at all the expert council members and see their areas of expertise. Our next expert is an expert indeed. He's a good friend of mine as well. His name's Nick Ferguson, and we have a question for him on the cultivation of both potato and sweet potato. Hey there, it's Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com calling in to answer your questions on homesteading, permaculture, gardening, especially in the South, plant propagation, and how to make a homestead work on a tight budget. If you don't know who I am already, I have my permaculture design certificate from Jeff Lawton himself. I'm a sustainable agriculture consultant, and I teach both in the USA and internationally. And I've been in the regenerative agriculture scene almost my whole life. Even my grandpa was a consultant. Uh, I've been doing this full-time for four years or so now, and I think I've done somewhat in the range of 150 or so site visits and consultations to date. So if you're looking to build more resiliency in your life through growing some of your own food or maybe starting to homestead, even if it's on a small scale, I'm the person to ask. And the question I have today is on growing potatoes and sweet potatoes. And the question is, what are the best methods for growing them? And do you use the same technique for both? Well, yes and no. You can use some of the same techniques, but I'm going to give you a handful for both of those types of garden produce. First, regular potatoes. I pre-sprout my potatoes, which just means that you set them in a sunny window on a rack that's one layer deep in your whole potatoes. And this should only take a week or two. And what this does is the sunlight triggers them and the warm temperatures trigger them to start um, growing. And they'll get nice, stocky, short um, eyes, kind of little sprouts that will be kind of hard to break off. And that's good. You don't want long... Um, gangly looking sprouts coming off of them because they break easily and then i cut large potatoes into sections about the size of an egg and i allow the cut ends to scab over they're just drying and kind of browning a little bit and you're shooting for at least one eye or sprout per piece of potato if the potatoes are around the size of a chicken egg just plant the whole thing um and letting them scab over or dry out helps to prevent soil-borne diseases from attacking them. If it's a fresh cut and you put it in wet soils or you're going to have wet soils for the next week or two, it'll promote disease. So if you aren't expecting wet soils, then you don't have to worry about drying the cut pieces. But I always do because you never know what weather is going to be like and I just rather um, have that extra little precaution. And I plant from February until about two to three weeks before the last spring frost. You can go a little bit later, but the earlier of a start you get with potatoes, the less disease and um, insect pressure you're going to be dealing with. And then I plant again in September through October, um, but I'm in zone 8A8B. I'm right on the line, um, but your growing season might be a little bit different than mine. Um, then I plant in either rows or potato boxes or potato towers. I really like the the towers. The boxes are the exact same thing, except it's a wooden box, and you just add um, kind of square or rectangular boxes stacking on, on top of each other. Some people use uh, tires. I do not like the tires. They get way too hot, and that's one of the main problems people have with these potato towers is either they put it in the full sun and they just bake or 
they let it dry out. Um, but let's talk about rows first because that's the most typical way that people grow potatoes. If it's rows, I plant at ground level. I just prepare the ground, loosen it up a little bit, and I plant right on the ground. And then I mound up soil as they grow to cover a lot of the stem in soil. And initially, it'll just be you know two or three inches of soil, maybe four inches of soil on top of them. And then you proceed to cover them up as you go. And this is called hilling. And generally, in about two weeks after planting, you'll see leaves pop up. After they get about eight inches tall, you gently scrape soil from the middle of your path up till it covers all but the top two to three inches of leaves. And it'll keep growing up. And after it grows another eight inches, hill it up again. And you do this two or three times or as many times as you have soil. If you plant your potatoes three to four feet apart, you probably won't have enough soil to do it more than three times. Then they just grow normally. They build up a nice green top, they flower, and then they start to dwindle. You know, they start to turn yellowish or brownish and they get scraggly. And after the tops look mostly dead or just really scraggly and yellow, it's time to harvest. And alternatively, you could use mulch. It's best to use hay or straw that is free of weed seeds or, and herbicides or just use shredded leaves. I prefer shredded leaves because normally you can get them for free or really cheap, and they're almost always 100% free of herbicides. This is the way I prefer to grow potatoes. It's cleaner. You don't have to wash all the dirt off of them. It produces just as well, sometimes even better. It's less work, just all around better in my humble opinion. And the method is kind of the same as hilling. You just do the exact same thing except with mulch. Super easy. Or you could go with a potato tower or a fence tower. Now, I know you said you uh, have had problems with that in the past and haven't been successful. One of the main reasons other than putting it in the full sun and it just bakes there because you think about it you've got the ambient temperature and then you have the sun hitting it so if it's a root crop and it's it's made to grow in the soil where it's relatively cool and you put it in this tower in the full sun of the heat of summer and then expect it to grow well and it's kind of a skinny tower maybe two foot across it's going to heat up too much and it's going to get too hot in there so the main things that people do wrong uh, with the potato towers is they let them dry out or they don't provide any compost or soil or they just put them in the full sun, especially in the south. That's a the biggest mistake you can do. Put them somewhere that they're only going to get morning sun. This is, you know, we've got to protect them a little bit. We're talking about, uh, you know, intensive gardening here. We need to be more attentive and more careful about where we put these things. So don't put them where they're going to get any western sun. And don't make a skinny tower. I use a whole 16 to 18 foot of fencing. You wire it together to make an open-topped and open-bottomed cylinder. I just use goat fence or cattle fence, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's four foot across, four foot tall. It's not a skinny tower. And this helps keep it cool. In the center, and it ke- helps keep it moist. It doesn't dry out as quickly. And the towers need to be watered more often than soil. So stick your hand in there. Feel how moist it is and make sure it doesn't dry out inside. You may need to poke a hose in the sides and down the top to push water into the center of it to get it wet. Because if you have whole leaves or they're not shredded very well and you just try to water it from the top, it'll just you know sheet off. Kind of like uh, an old-fashioned um, hay pile. It keeps it dry in the center. 
And if you let it dry out in the center, well, they're going to die. So to plant these, you're going to put down a foot or so of mulch-like material, like shredded leaves again. Then lay your potatoes on top and cover with about four inches of shredded leaves and some manure or compost. Cover with leaves and compost or some kind of nitrogen source. It doesn't need to be much. Just a sprinkling of compost or manure will do it every time you add a layer of leaves. And keep the potatoes growing up and out of the mulch as you add to it until you get it filled. You should have about four foot of potatoes uh, stem growing inside the cage with branches sticking out the sides and the top. You get a tremendous amount of production per square foot of growing space using this vertical growing method. And as for sweet potatoes, they're super simple. I just lay the potatoes horizontally in a pan of water. You can do the whole toothpick thing in a glass of water and uh, just lay them in a take pan of water. You could set them in an aquarium halfway in the water on some egg crate. They root, they form shoots, and as soon as the shoot is about four inches tall, you break it off at the base, stick it in a cup of water to root. After it's rooted well and grown, you can take those slips, what they're called, and plant them in your garden. Alternatively, you can just get a couple sweet potatoes, plant them in a pot of soil inside, let them grow and pull off shoots as they come out of the potato and root them during the winter. After that, plant them Anywhere the soil is loose enough to dig later so you can pull your sweet potatoes out, and they pretty much take care of themselves. The tower method works really well. I have a friend who grows them in his backyard with very little space, and that was one of his main problems was getting some good carbohydrate crop to grow in his small backyard that was mostly concrete. He didn't have room, so I suggested the tower method and using some of the water plants that he grows in his aquaponic system as mulch and as fertility, and he reported it worked flawlessly. They got a huge harvest in a small space. I really like to use sweet potato as kind of an understory plant whenever I want to get some production, but it's someplace I'm not worried about really putting in much effort. The Towerworth method works great with the sweet potatoes, like I said, but instead of keeping the vines vertical... Instead, let them grow out until they're long enough to cross completely through the tower and out the other side. And then thread them through the tower mesh to the other side, crisscrossing each other, and then add your layer of mulch material. They root and set tubers wherever the vine touches moist media. And you just keep doing that until you fill the whole tower up. Um, but with both sweet and kind of Irish potatoes, whatever you want to call them, you know, the regular potatoes people get at the grocery store, if you baby them too much and fertilize them too much, they will grow massive amounts of leafy material and no tubers. So towards the end of the season, let them suffer a little water deprivation, defoliate them a little bit, and that stress will spur the plant to build up root reserves to get through what the plant perceives as a tough time coming up, you know, a dry season or whatever. So it's trying to suck up all those uh, nutrients out of the vines and put them into roots so that it can make it until the next good growing season. I hope that helps you out, David. You may want to slightly adjust your planting dates, but since you're in the south, it shouldn't be too far off from mine. To hear more from me, check out my website, homegrownliberty.com, where I have 50 or so podcasts and blog posts on homesteading, gardening, raising rabbits, goats, and training dogs. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Do good things. 
more than you ever thought there was to know about the cultivation of potato and sweet potato from Nick Ferguson. Let me just reiterate what I've said recently, that I think one of the most fantastic crops that anybody can grow is sweet potato uh, for the greens alone, especially here in the south. And you know, Every time you harvest, you can basically pluck some slips back into the, the ground or the tower, or whatever you're using, and grow more and more and more. We ate a lot of sweet potato greens this, uh, this, this summer. Uh, it's our number one production crop we had. And no matter how much I cut, no matter how much I sauteed, no matter how much I, I used, it seemed like there was more the next day. Uh, so definitely consider that as well. Next question I have is for Stephen Harris. I'm kind of doing an upgrade on the old switch box in the home electrical system. Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in for the expert panel. I got a good one here for you from Mike in Ontario. Hi, Jack and Steve. If a person was to have some work done to their home's breaker panel, their electrical breaker panel, what should they consider from a survival and preparedness perspective? I just bought a 28-year-old house, which conveniently has the breaker panel in the garage right beside the vehicle. I've been considering having an electrician rewire the panel to make more sense. Our clothes washer is on the same breaker as the garage lights, despite being 40 feet away. If I'm going to have some work done to the panel anyway, what can I have done to make my electrical system more man manageable in a survival situation? Along the lines of hooking up my essential desirable systems to an inverter on a car or eventually to a battery bank. I'm in Ontario, Canada, if you're wondering about climate and building codes, and my furnace and hot water tanks are both on natural gas. Thank you, Mike. Mike, this is a common mistake a lot of people make. You do not want to hook up your inverter to your house. Your inverter is for small loads, cell phones, TVs, radios, AA batteries. It's not for your coffee maker, although people do use it for their coffee maker. There are too many parasitic loads in a house. If you were to hook up your inverter to your car, and remember, this is not a lightsaber. If you're, you would have your washer and your dryer have a parasitic load waiting for the button to be pushed on. The refrigerator does. The TVs do. The electronics. The smoke detectors. They're all on the grid of the house. And they're all going to be drawing power. I hate to tell you this, but the simplest answer and the best answer when your power fails is to hook up an extension cord to your inverter and to run it inside your house and hook up the things that you need to hook up. If you're hooked up to your house and your refrigerator decides to go into defrost mode for the freezer for about two, three minutes, which it does, It draws about six, eight hundred watts to melt the frost on the walls of the freezer on top of the one to two hundred watt load of the refrigerator. Then your furnace, which is no small device. A furnace is not just something you just easily power up. Most furnaces have a 12 to 13 amp blower, which means you're going to be drawing 1,400 to 1,500 watts. So you draw an 800 watts on your refrigerator. With the electrical defrosting that just came on, you got the parasitic loads on the rest of the house. Someone turns on the microwave at 1,200 watts, and the house furnace kicks on, and you are beyond well over 
loaded. Remember, really powering your house from your car is done with a small inverter, like a 200-watt inverter and less. Uh, the reason you might go with a 1,200 or 1,600-watt inverter on your car is you might have a sump pump in your house. A sump pump might easily draw 800 watts, but a sump pump is only on for 30 seconds. And it might be on only for 30 seconds every 5 minutes to every 15 minutes to every hour, depending upon how much drainage there is under your house and how hard it's raining and what type of flood zone you're in. So that's why you have a higher power device on your car. The other reason you might have like an 800 or 1,000 watt inverter on your car with an extension cord running into the house is because you might want to power your refrigerator or your freezer one at a time for maybe an hour twice or three times a day. Refrigerator and freezers don't need to be plugged in all the time. Get out of the mentality of, I gotta power my refrigerator and my freezer, I gotta do it. You got two days worth of food in your refrigerator and it'll take you two days to eat it. What's the problem? Um, and it'll stay cool for two days. So I have a whole class on refrigerators and freezers at solar123, at steven1234.com. Go check it out. But, you know, what can you do? Well, let's say you want to have a generator, and you want to have a generator power your entire house. So you go buy an 8,000-watt generator, and you got the electrician come over. You want him to install a transfer switch that disconnects your breaker from the mains and reconnects it to the L1 and L2 and neutral of the 240-volt output of your generator. So when you throw that switch, I mean, it's like throwing a Frankenstein monster switch. When you throw that switch, you are completely disconnected from the mains, and you are on to the generator, and then when you go back, you're off the generator and on the mains. If you try to backfeed your house with an inverter from your car, you got to have uh, interlocks on your, on your breaker panel, which means th- that uh, the metal can't move and you can't power up the breaker box until the mains are disconnected. It's a safety issue. If you hook up to your house and your mains are still connected, you're just going to energize all the wires and all the homes around you, and that's not good. And then you, that's going to be a danger to the safety workers. So if you're going to have work done to your breaker box, you want to get a generator, you want to have a transfer switch installed. Now, what Jack had done when he lived in um, Louisiana, what state was it, Jack? Arkansas. Uh, he had a generator outside, and he had a window that opens up and down. He took like a two-by-four, drilled a bunch of holes in it, put some foam on it, so when his power failed, he started his generator up outside. Let's say it was 50 feet away from the house. And he ran his power cables in through the window. And he put 
in his two by four, which was the width of the window with the foam in it. And he closed the window. So he had an airtight seal and the extension cords ran into the house and he ran them to his TV and he ran them to the different things that he wanted to keep powered. That is a very intelligent and very smart way of running power into your house. You need to take my class on how to power your house from your car at stephen1234.com. One of the things that makes your life easy are these orange three-way um, plugs. You plug them into an outlet, and you got one outlet to the right, one to the left, and one straight out. You take these, you can put four of them together, and now you got eight eight different outlets coming off of the thing. It's better than a power strip. Then you plug in, so you, you run the power from the car up, let's say, from the garage up into your kitchen. And you got two of these orange outlets up there. Then you run that power from the kitchen with another 25-foot extension cord to the living room where you got another two or three of these orange three-way plugs plugged into each other as a power strip. And then you run another 25- or 50-foot cord from the living room up to the bedrooms. And then from that first bedroom up to the second and third bedrooms and or into the bathrooms, okay? And then into these orange three-ways, you plug in standard white uh, power cords from Walmart. They're like 16-gauge. They're made out of lamp cord. They're cheap. They're a couple, three bucks a piece. They're between six feet and 15 feet long. And you use those and you run those to your lamp. You run those to your television. And you run those to your radio. You run those to your battery charger. That is the smart way of hooking up your inverter from your car to your house. And that is also what you might want to do if you're going to have an electrical breaker work done, is have a transfer switch put in for your 240-volt generator. This is Steve Harris for the Survival Podcast, reminding you to get all of my free stuff I have done with Jack all of my free classes on first aid, energy, power, and more at stephen1234.com. Thank you, guys. Call me in some more questions. Great stuff from Stephen Harris, as always. I have a question now for full-time farmer Darby Simpson uh, from someone who has had to recently clear-cut uh, kind of some uh, some low-quality timber and clear an area and is wanting to now rehab that area. Darby, take it away. Hello, everybody. This is Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com and the Grass-Fed Life podcast. Today I'm calling in to answer a question for Jen in North Carolina, and uh, she's got quite a project on her hands. She just had about five acres of land cleared uh, that had some really low-value trees on it, and uh, she went out and um, put out some cover crops and, and kind of had this idea that uh, you know she'd have her, her neighbor's horses graze this this property and these cover crops to you know help regenerate it and help the recovery time. Um, but her contractor left a bunch of big ruts out there, and she's afraid that it has probably made the land a uh, little bit dangerous for the neighbor's horses. So she's really, uh, you know, kind of thinking that's not the, the route to go now. So she's trying to figure out if she should graze goats. Uh, she had thought about pigs, but says she's against pigs. So that that's kind of where we're at, and that's what we're dealing with. Um, 
Jen, I, I tell you, since you've got these big ruts out there, I mean, honestly, that's the first thing that needs dealt with. And I realize you've already put your cover crops in. But if you hired a contractor and they left great big ruts out there, you need to have them get their butts back over there and fix those. Any contractor worth their salt or logger or whatever should always, always, always go back through and repair these great big ruts that they have left behind. And um, you may have a hard time getting them back out to do that, but I tell you what, I'd try and uh, I'd pull out all the stops to make that happen. If they won't do it, that just that tells you a whole lot about the, the kind of guy that, unfortunately, you hired to come out and clear your land. But they should always go back through and at least fix the big stuff. They're not going to be able to fix everything. It's impossible. It's heavy equipment. But if you've got ruts out there that could break a horse's leg, which is, is basically what you insinuated in, in your question, then get their asses back out there and make them correct it. And make it right. That that would be the first thing. Um, so you've put cover crops out. It, it's now winter. I don't know what exactly it's like in, in North Carolina in the winter, if the cover crops have stayed green or not. Um, but, uh, you know, some, some kind of, depending on what you've planted, some kind of a grazing ruminant would probably be a good idea. You mentioned goats. Um, I, I've said before, and I'll, I'll say it again, I, I think goats are neat animals. I personally don't have goats. I, I don't have the proper kind of fence that it takes to uh, contain goats. Um, I've talked to several people that do have goats, and I know there are exceptions to every rule, but, but by and large, the old adage is if it won't hold water, it won't hold a goat. So, I, you know, unless you're willing to, to go out and move, uh, you know, some really good portable netting, uh, from what I've been told, every two to three days, that, that's, that's what will keep a, a goat occupied is if you move him every two or three days within, with using good netting, uh, that keeps them preoccupied enough that they, uh, you know, won't get out of, of the netting. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but just from listening and talking with others, that's kind of the gist of what I understand about goats. So that could be very, very labor intensive. I think the bigger question is, you know, what's the long-term plan for this land? I mean, what are you trying to accomplish? What's, what is your context here? Are you just wanting it to be clear, uh, you know, just so you can do eventual silvopasture, like you mentioned, or are you wanting to, you know, raise some food, uh, in, in the interim? Um, you know, if it was me, uh, and you wanted something simple that you could do was probably out a whole lot of trouble, uh, look, I would say you spend a few hundred bucks and, and put up a light duty, semi-permanent, uh, maybe three wire, uh, and make it hot, it, you know, high tensile system, wh which you can do with all portable stuff. You get some good T-posts, a T-post driver. Uh, there are some pretty neat corner brace systems that you can purchase really cheaply now, a buddy of mine. Uh, that lives right up the road from me, bought one from Kenco. I think it was like 45 bucks, and it just uses like five T-posts to make a really good corner. Um, and then, you know, you, you put up some uh, high tensile wire, aluminum wire. Uh, you know, you could use, um, uh, you know, portable reels if you wanted to, to just go around the perimeter of this thing. i just go buy a couple of cows. If you're really wanting to rehabilitate the land, um, and if you want to get some value back out of this, 
while you're rehabilitating the land and before you can put in your, your permanent silvopasture system, you can't beat a cow. I mean, you just cannot beat a cow. Um, uh, particularly if you're going to go out and plant cover crops, uh, and then you, you can see, you know, what natural grasses come back. You're going to get some stuff to come back. You could also go out, go ahead and plant grasses for cattle on five acres. Not going to cost you that much. Going to have to rent some equipment, borrow some equipment, whatever. But if you've, you know, I, I would say, look, if, if you've got a couple, couple three thousand bucks to invest, go buy two cows, uh, get some temporary fence put up, uh, put a solar charger on it, or if it's close enough to your house, just get a powered charger and run a wire out there. Some garden hose run out to a, uh, you know, a thirty-five dollar. A uh, 30 gallon tank that you buy at the farm store with a $13 aluminum body dare float valve and bada boom, bada bing. You're in business. You're ready to rock and roll. Uh, the cows take care of the rest. As long as they got a little bit of shade, that's all they need. Get those ruts fixed though. One way or another. If you have to pay somebody else to come in and fix the great big ruts, do it. Rent a piece of equipment. Do it yourself. Uh, barter with a neighbor. Borrow a piece of equipment from a neighbor. Whatever. But you, you definitely need to get those taken care of. Now one thing you mentioned in your question, uh, your email that you sent in, in to uh, old Uncle Jack, was that you were opposed to pigs because you have a very small child and you, you worry about her safety. And I, and I understand that. But there's nothing that says you have to put your small child in with the pigs. Um, pigs can be pretty daggone regenerative. And the neat thing about a pig is they're not as picky as a cow, and they're nowhere near as picky as a horse or a goat. Uh, I mean, the, the goats aren't picky when it comes to, to browsing. Um, it, horses, you got to be really careful what they're eating, or you can run into problems. Cow can make just about anything work, so long as it's a grass or legume-based. A pig will eat anything, and it'll convert anything into meat. Now, you're going to have some grain that you're going to have to supplement them with, but i tell you what, the, the, uh, the portable... Netting that Premier Fence sells for pigs, that stuff rocks, and it's really inexpensive, okay? And if you go through, and there's a blog article on my website that talks all about training pigs to electricity. If you go through and do that and you get yourself, say, seven sections of this portable pig netting and you get two or three hogs and rotate them around out there, they're going to go through and, and, you know, graze like crazy. Now, if you really just want them to graze and you don't want them to root, you're going to need to think about wringing their noses. And I, I know that that's just darn near heretical in regenerative agriculture circles to say to wring a pig's nose. But they will root and tear stuff up like you wouldn't believe if you don't do it. I don't wring my pig's noses because I run them in the forest. I really don't care if they make a mess. But if 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 you go to about the neatest farm I've ever seen, which is Mark Shepard's place up in Wisconsin, he actually rings his pig's noses because they will destroy all of his lovely trees that he has worked for over 20 years to get established. So they're allowed to eat the stuff falling from the trees. They're allowed to graze on the grasses. He gives them a little bit of grain to help sustain them, but their noses are ringed so that they don't destroy everything. Um, I, I, pigs, you could put them in there and be done with them in six months and, and make some really good money. You know, uh, now you can make money with cows too. You know, put one in your freezer, sell a couple of halves of friends and family, whatever. But I wouldn't tell you to just not do pigs, uh, you know, just because you're, you're scared of your, uh, your, your daughter's safety. 
Um, I wouldn't necessarily put a small child in there with them ever. I might carry her around with me if I had another adult in there just so she could see them. Um, you know, but a lot of breeds of pigs are actually pretty daggone docile and not that hard to work with. So anyway, there are some ideas for you. Uh, Jen, I hope that helps you out. Uh, everyone, to learn more about me, head out to my website, DarbySimpson.com. If you're interested in doing a one-on-one -on -one consult, I do offer those. And if you're an MSB member, you get a discount on those. If you're really serious about taking the next step with farming and you want to do this for profit, check out the Farm Business Essentials workshop that I'm doing with Diego Footer. That is coming up in Martinsville, Indiana, March 2nd through the 4th. It is an intense three days, a lot of value. Head on over to permaculturevoices.com. Check out all the details or email me directly. And check out the Grass-Fed Life podcast, also at Permaculture Voices or in iTunes. Everyone, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming and have a great weekend. All right, guys, uh, great advice from Darby. And uh, I have a question that's kind of similar, sort of, and totally different, but it's still about rehabbing land. This question is for Jeff Lawton. It involves cover cropping in a high-traffic area and compacted clay and want to grow edible tubers. And it doesn't all really go together. Jeff will give you his opinion on it. And, and I'll come back and give you kind of some ways to think about it a little bit differently. And maybe between the two, Uh, you uh, can find a solution uh, to similar issues on, on your property, and it shows you how to kind of approach things from different angles. Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here, and I'm coming to you from Australia, and um, I'm here to answer your questions about permaculture and permaculture design and um, general self-sufficiency. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, then you can look me up on jefflawtononline.com and also on the website the permaculture circle where i have a lot of free information and a lot of free videos um and this question is about cover cropping um this person has a few patches of bare soil um aralia aralia she has a, a few patches of, of bare soil uh, that were recently cleared as part of a fire break protection around a dwelling And um, they'd like to cover the bare dirt and break up the clay pan that's developed with edible root vegetables. But this place has to double as a camping area during the summer, so any plants I sow have to be able to withstand foot traffic. That's getting pretty difficult. You want something to grow root vegetables, and you're going to stomp all over them and have, 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 have foot traffic over them. Uh, do you have any favorite cover crops and roots that you can recommend Uh, sowing into tough clay soils, and do you suggest perennial or annual varieties? So, you know, that, that's, that's, and this is Banks, Oregon, uh, zone 8B, average rainfall of 45 inches a year. Well, the first thing I think of is root vegetables breaking up clay. I'm thinking of Fukuoka's use of, of daikon radish. So daikon radish should do it, but I don't think they'll stand much walking on top of them. And if they do, I can't imagine them being edible anymore. So you could have daikon in there and then pull them out before your campers arrive. Um, ground covers, um, not so many ground covers that will take foot traffic that are still a major food edible. I mean, pennyroyal will take a little bit of foot traffic, but it's just a scented herb. Um, then you could use clovers, but they're not such an edible, and you can use lupin and vetch, but they're more nitrogen-fixing. 
So um, I don't think I've exactly got anything in mind that will take foot traffic, be edible, and cover those bare pan areas, those bare clay clay areas. Um, uh, but it could be um, an annual crop that you harvest just before your your summer comes in. Radishes are, are, are very fast. Daikon's one of your classics. It penetrates down the soil, but li- lifts up a bit. Um, so it's almost like there's going to be a bump there, and you're going to walk over it. Um, e- even turnips are not bad, but they don't really penetrate like 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 the the, the daikon. I think that'd be your best bet. Daikon and cover crop, and um, and allow for some sacrifice when you go and uh, camp all over it during the summer. There you go, Jeff Lawton coming at you from Australia, and um, remember. Enjoy the journey. Okay, um, before I give the solution I'm going to give, I want to preface it with Jeff Lawton is my greatest mentor in permaculture, and I'm not second-guessing him at all. And my initial reaction was I almost didn't send this question to Jeff because I felt the same way he did. Like, in the end, you're just not really going to do this. Maybe you could throw it out there and pull him up out of the ground. before. But to me, then, you're going to have the whole thing recompacted, um, so this is Jeff trying to fit a solution in that doesn't really work because he's trying to give the person exactly what they're asking. So w- what I've realized over the years, and I- I've seen Jeff do this too, so it may just be, you know, Jeff's knocking out three questions for me in, in one shot. I bet he would, if he listened to this, he would kind of agree with my take on this. There's times when a person says, this is what I want, and you say, well, you can't have it. You can't have it that way. But we can make this work, and, and here's how. And, and what I always try to do is go through different permaculture principles in my head and use those principles to define a solution to the problem that may not be exactly what the person asking the question or proposing the situation might really want but or be coming from, but it is what they really want. So here's what I hear. I want to take these areas and I want to make them to where people can come in and camp and I want to get rid of this hard compacted clay so it's not a mess. I want people to be able to walk around and enjoy themselves, but I don't want to waste the space and I want to be able to get some sort of a yield out of it. So the permaculture principle that springs to mind for me in this situation is use the edge and value the marginal. Okay, And some of you just had a light bulb go boop right over your head like a cartoon. Uh, and you're going to know what he's going to say. I would go into this whole area and I would use, you know, annual penetrating cover crop definitely to loosen the soil. I might even till it a little bit because compacted clay can be kind of a bitch to get things started in. And, and this would be a good time of year to address this because you can get the seed down right at the time when it's going to work for you. Because if you put seed down on hard clay in June, it's going to bake and it's not going to, it's not going to germinate. And anybody's tried it knows that. But I might go in and do a bit of tilling or soil disturbance or something like that on the surface and, and do a great seed mixture with the intention to success it into turf, grass and clover, grass and low-growing clover like New Zealand or Dutch white, and, and, and dominant toward the clover because it's going to be a fertility yield for the whole flipping thing, okay? Um and and it's gonna that's gonna actually create a fertility yield from nitrogen fixing from the clover 
throughout it, and it's going to be very easy to maintain if you dominate in clover. When we had our, our property in Pennsylvania, which, which has a climate much more similar to you now than I have, uh, and we did clover, and you get all that rain in the summer. Clover get really, really tall, and you wouldn't feel like there would be bees everywhere. And I, I wouldn't want to mow it. It looked look nice. And I can let it go two, three weeks longer than you really should for mowing as opposed to grass that would get all high and gnarly because that clover would only get to a certain point and would kind of stop there. And then when you, you cut it, it would just pulse and grow back really, really quick. And you could do that with grazing, you could do that with anything. So we're gonna, we're gonna, we would put the, the turnip and the, the daikon and everything, or just like Jeff said, with this, this turf succession into a grass clover mixture that works for your climate. But at the same time, what we would want to do, if you really want to have a, a, a fertility uh, yield, or not a fertility yield, an edible yield, Build around these turf areas, around the edges, raised berms. When you disturb your soil, pull some of that over. They're just small raised berms that are obvious, like this is not where you walk. right? And create pathways and spaces and dividers using this approach. We might even play with a little bit of mini hooticulture, some debris and detritus laying around. Let's build that up and cover it over. And, and then when we, when we seed those, we're going to seed those You know, with, you know, we might put some clover in them, but we're not going to put turf grass in there. We're going to put in all of our different, uh, perennial and annual and biannual things. Like I would think chicory would well, work well in there. Um, plantain would work. Comfrey would work well in there. All of these things, like little garden berms. And think about the, the way that foot traffic naturally flows and water naturally flows so you don't create erosion problems or access disruption where people just ignore it and walk over it. But hey, if they do walk over, they're probably going to cut a little channel through. They're not going to walk linearly down the whole thing. And whatever the, see, if you were doing, using animals, you'd let the animal pattern then d d describe you what your eventual pattern would look like. So if you have a human pattern, you know, and maybe a little education like these berms are not for walking on. These help maintain the area. Right? So then we do that, and then, you know, annually we can go in and we can reseed those area with daikon, and maybe we throw some daikon into, uh, the turf area as well, and actually, if we let some of our daikon go to seed, especially in your climate, it will reseed, and comfrey will kind of do its thing, and, and then you can just figure out whatever you want to grow in these berms. You can throw from our earlier thing, you know, sweet potato in there, and zone eight, Uh, I know it's Oregon, but it's zone eight because you're coastal. Uh, sweet potato will overwinter. Um, you can put taller crops in there. And those taller crops will actually encourage your people not to go through. Jerusalem artichoke, there's your tuber. And, and you know, just a few spaces where that doesn't get trampled, it'll produce more for you than you can use. And it's not going to become a real problem coming out of the margins because your campers are going to trample it. And I'll tell you the secret with Jerusalem artichoke. When it re, you know, re comes, when it comes back every year and it sends some runners out and it's starting to come up, don't do anything at first. Leave it alone. Let it get about a foot, a foot and a half tall and then just pull it out of the ground. It'll pop right out. The tuber will be hollow and it won't come back. If you start yanking it when it's little, the, whatever energy it's got less, it'll start making a little bolus. It'll make more and more of itself, kind of like coppicing a tree. But if we just wait, expend its energy, because now the plant said, well, I've got the plant up. 
And it, it's taking all that energy out of that tuber and you yank it out. So you can control how far you let that spread out. And you could have an awful lot of production in these margins while you leave the areas where people are setting up tents and hanging out and putting chairs and stuff. Basically more of a turf grass situation. That's how I would approach the problem. Anyway, we've got one more for you. This one for old Doc Bones on dealing with urinary tract infections. Doc, take it away, man. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, now with over 900 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way, something you might want to know a little bit about. I can answer questions about issues relating to survival medicine. Now, this week's question for the expert counsel comes from, uh, well, an anonymous listener. It goes like this. I've, quite, I've got a question for Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. I recently had a bladder infection and found out how painful and debilitating it can be. I have a hard time keeping up with my chores for the animals. Can you suggest some ways to prevent and treat urinary tract infections What med- when medical attention may not be immediately available? Liquid waste is excreted through the urinary tract. The urinary tract of the body's plumbing includes the kidneys, the ureters, the bladder, and the urethra. Now, you might find it interesting to know that urine, although a waste product, is normally sterile. Despite this, many women have experienced a urinary tract infection or UTI in some point of their lives. An infection of the bladder, also known as cystitis, usually affects the urethra, the tube from the bladder to the outside, as well. Although men are not immune to urinary tract infections, they are much less susceptible to them. The male urethra is much longer than its female counterpart, and microorganisms have to travel a longer distance to reach the bladder. Various different organisms can cause urinary tract infections. E. coli is one of the most common. Some bacteria that cause UTIs, such as gonorrhea, are sexually transmitted. In these cases, painful urination is seen in men. That's called dysuria. It's very common, and and sexually transmitted urinary tract infections. Certainly, most women, though, might only note a yellowish discharge from the vagina in those cases. Although painful urination is not uncommon in bladder infections, cystitis, the most common symptom is frequent trips to the bathroom. That's called frequency. Some people also notice that the stream of urine is somewhat hard to start. That's called hesitancy or they might feel an urgent need to go without warning. That's called urgency. These are all signs of urinary tract infections. If not treated, a bladder infection could ascend all the way up to the kidneys, causing a more serious infection known as pyelonephritis. Preventative medicine plays a large role in decreasing the likelihood of this problem. Adherence to basic hygienic methods in those people at high risk, especially women, is a very good idea. These recommendations include wiping from front to back after urinating or defecating, urinating right after an episode of sexual intercourse, avoiding the postponing of urination where there is a strong urge, drinking lots of fluids, and wearing cotton undergarments to allow air circulation in areas that might otherwise encourage bacterial or fungal growth. Treatment revolves around the vigorous administration of fluids, water, cranberry juice. These are good things to help flush out the infection by decreasing the concentration of bacteria in the bladder of urine. Flush them out. 
applying warm compresses to the bladder region is soothing for people. They definitely could try that as well. Antibiotics, another mainstay of therapy. These are most often used for higher up infections, but can be used for urinary tract infections. Uh, Bactrim, septra, bird sulfa. These are all the same same medicine. Uh, it's called sulfamethoxazole-trimethoprim, actually two different medicines that are combined in bird sulfa, bactrim, and septra. Amoxicillin is also useful. Fishmox, uh, nitrofurantoin, uh, that's also called macrobid. Ampicillin, fishcillin, uh, cipro, uh, or also known as fish flocks. These are some of your other options. Now, an over-the-counter medication that eliminates the painful urination seen in urinary tract infections, that's phenazopyridine. That's also known as peridium. Uristat, azo, comes under a lot of different name brands. Now, if you try this stuff, you will feel better, but don't be alarmed. If your urine turns a reddish-orange, it's an effect of the drug. It's temporary. Uh, Vitamin C supplements, they're thought to reduce the concentration of bacteria in the urine uh, by some. A few natural remedies are also helpful. Garlic is good. Echinacea extract or tea. Goldenrod tea. Uh, Maybe add a, a little bit of vinegar to it. Cranberry tablets exist. And some people even use as a... Uh, warm water wash, Alka-Seltzer, and water. So that's something that you might consider. You can use any of these remedies up to three times a day. Now, one more alternative that may be helpful is to perform an external massage over the bladder area, the lower lower part of your abdomen, with uh, some drops of lavender essential oil, maybe mixed with castor oil for a few minutes. Then you can apply a gentle heat source to the area, a warm compress, and repeat that three or four times daily. This may help decrease bladder spasms and pain. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget that all members of the Member Support Brigade get a discount on anything in Nurse Amy's Doom and Bloom Medical Kit and Supply Store. That's at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. All right, that's all we have in MD because I wouldn't know what to tell you at that at all. Um, and uh, thanks to Doc Bones for, for that answer. And again, that's another example of a, a, an expert council member. We are just so fortunate to have in, in, in Doc Moans and Nurse Amy, although we don't hear from her enough. She doesn't ever chime in on this stuff anymore. Um, you know, get your questions in, guys, for shows like this. Remember, TSP, TSPC expert in the subject line. Tell me who the question's for. Get it in. Doc Bones, Nick Ferguson, Jeff Lawton, uh, Steve Harris, Erica Strauss. I mean, Darby Simpson, you think about the, the team that we have available to you guys in expert counsel. It's one of the coolest things I've ever been able to pull off in, uh, in my career, certainly as a podcaster, but I think in my career line for over 30 years in general. Anyway, um, I wanted to kind of back clean up today with, uh, not really a question, more of an observation, uh, tying into my discussion on anarchy versus voluntarism, even though they really actually are the same thing to the informed. But you're not talking to the informed all the time, and, and you, you get shut down when you use certain words. So this came in, and this is this is fascinating to me. I would have thought to uh, to pull off this level of deception, you would have to put like a a week or two of buffer in there, but uh, apparently not. So check this out. Says, hey Jack, Pat the Leo from Florida, uh, currently deployed to Gitmo. Point up front. 
I tried using the term anarchy one night on duty, and the next night tried voluntarist with the guys I work with. Background. While on patrol in the middle of the night, military people often get into deep discussions and conversations about everything. You bet we do. I'm telling you, I remember those days. Trump was a hot topic, so I chimed in to test the water with what anarchy has to offer. And lo and behold, it was, quote, but there would be murder and rape everywhere, end quote. I was able to get a few aha moments, but they had very short-term memory, and I had to keep saying, no, that would be against the non-aggression principle. The very next night, all three of my teammates, the very same people, were in the red versus blue debate, and one said, quote, I don't believe half the nonsense that Pat believes about government, end quote. So I said, nah, well, really, I'm a voluntarist. What's that, you ask? Well, you shouldn't hurt people and steal from them. I got a unanimous response of yes, of course. You also shouldn't force people to do things they don't want to do or stop them from doing things they want to do as long as they're not hurting anybody. They all very much agreed instantly. There was no comments about rape or riots or murder. It all went very smoothly and with some interest in return. I had tried to try not to laugh at the magic hold the media has on brainwashing people. I said almost the exact same basic speech from the night before, but switched the word anarchy to voluntarism, and it was like magic. Short update. My website is growing every day, thanks to 5 Minutes with Jack. Can't wait to make it to my full-time income. Thanks for all you do. The deployed Florida Leo, Pat. Pat, thank you for that, uh, because I think you've made my decision for me. And, and I want to kind of talk about it from another angle. I have very vigorously de defended using the term survivalist on this show. Um, but I've also kind of always advertised, advised that maybe you don't use it when you're sharing the message of preparedness. And, and I've, I've, I've defended it this way. Survivalist means one who specializes in the ability to continue to exist, which I think is a perfect description of all human beings that don't, like, really need OSHA, Okay. Right, people that don't end up on the Darwin Awards. We all specialize in continuing to, to exist, and, and being a survivalist simply means that we're aware of that, we're conscious of that, and we take an active hand in being better at it. So that's fine. But when somebody says to me, "Well, Jack, what do you do for a living?" When I meet somebody, it just happens all the time. You know, people at work are here on the farm or some. What do you do? Is this all you do? No, I run a podcast. And most people today know what a podcast is. Some people have to explain it's like a radio show on the internet. Oh, what's your show about? This is my answer. I don't say survivalist. I don't say prepping. I say self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and personal liberty. And people, you see their eyes light up. Wow, that's like all kinds of stuff. And you start, well, what are some of you, you know, fishing, hunting, basic preparedness. Also, preparedness isn't scary at all because it's wrapped in this whole envelope. Uh, we talk about growing your own food. We talk about, you know, all kinds of things. What's your website? TheSurvivalPodcast.com. They write it down. Where if you just said, I do a show called The Survival Podcast. What's that? Crazy shit? Right? Because you get the opportunity to actually explain it first. That said, I've realized that anybody that comes here and listens to this show, I can say survivalist to, and they're not going to run away with their fingers in the air like a moon bat screaming, the end is near, or do you think the end is near, or whatever. They, 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 the fact that they've gotten to this show means that they're not so turned off by the word survival that they won't listen to what you have, or they wouldn't listen. 
right? And, and the advantage when I started this show over eight years ago of calling the survival podcast rather than the self-sufficiency podcast outweighed any of the negative connotations of survival. There's such, it's such, it's such a great market space that it was easier to get people in that were maybe even a little bit freaked out and calm them down than it was trying to get people that weren't uh, paying attention at all to pay attention. So it worked from a marketing hook. So I never really had to worry about using it. But I realize at this point that not only do we as a community that believe in voluntary associations use the term anarchy way too much you know, online or in person. I use it too much on this show. I'm actually going to cease using the word anarchy and anarchist on this show. And it's the same reason I advise people that are doing, let's say, uh, design consultation or installation work in permaculture to maybe not always use the word permaculture. When you say we install edible landscaping, permaculturists go, I know what that is, but the people that don't know what permaculture is don't look at you like there's a lizard crawling out of your ear. They're like, I'd like edible landscaping too. right? So when you use the term voluntarist, The person that's a real anarchist, not an ANCOM, not a false anarchist, not some idiot, knows exactly what you're saying. But the person that doesn't know what real anarchy is doesn't get turned off. And it gives you a chance to explain it. And, and, and those of you that maybe go, anarchy again, Jack, I, I want you to give me an opportunity here at the end of today's show to, to put this to you maybe a little bit differently. And I'm going to take you on a mental experiment that's going to be a little bit tough. And you might be, that's never going to happen. Well, it sort of happens every day. It's a metaphor, though. Okay, I want you to, to simply evaluate the, 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 this statement. To kill a person who is no threat to your life or anybody else's life in a direct manner, who hasn't killed anybody, so it's not an excuse, a, a person, a random person that's just standing there with no intent to harm anybody, to kill that person is wrong, and it's always wrong. And most of you are going, well, duh, that's a pretty easy one to agree with. Okay, now I want you to imagine that there's not one person, that there's a hundred, and there's a hundred and one, and one of them's you. In your hand is a gun. That gun has a single bullet in it, and there's a maniac outside of that room. He's got the whole place locked down. And he says to you, this is what I'm going to offer you. I've selected one person for you to shoot. If you shoot that person, I'm going to let these other 99 people go. I'll never bother them again. If you don't shoot one of them, I'm going to kill all 100 of them and you. So you have an opportunity right now to save the lives of 99 people by taking the life of one. Okay. Now I know what you're going to say. Well, how would you trust a maniac like that? Let's say that you believed him. That maybe this had already been done once before. Like there were 200 in there and he gave somebody else the same opportunity. And when they did it, he let the 99 people go. You watched them leave. That that's really the decision you're met with to kill that one person or have them die anyway and have 99 die. I'm not even going to say you're wrong if you say I won't take part in this. And if you have to kill us all, you have to kill us all. I'm telling you that a lot of people, a lot of people, would take that one life if they really believed it would save 99. And all of a sudden, that which we know is wrong, we're willing to do anyway because of the quote-unquote greater good. And just like many of you are questioning how much greater good really would happen there, would this maniac still kill everybody anyway? Right? 
What do you say? Well, they're going to live, but now they're going to live in torture until they die of starvation. And I've kept my word. All of these, the greater good really wasn't accomplished. And all that happened was this one person was killed in violation of your principles. That that happens all the time with the state, all the time with government. The supposed greater good actually creates greater pain and greater loss. But we make it look shiny and we legitimize it with procedures. But let's say that's not even the case. Let's say that society's wrongs, stealing in the form of taxation, uh, punishing people for the possession of, of, of plants or drugs that they didn't hurt anybody to acquire, and if, they only, if they're going to harm anybody, it's only themselves. And, and, and you say, well, it's better for this person to be in prison for five years than to smoke crack, right? Let's say that you're even right. Isn't it still wrong? Isn't it still wrong to do it, but you're doing it under circumstances that require it. And I know my, my, my purist, anarchist, voluntarist friends are out there going, it's not! No, just let go. We're trying to win minds and hearts here. You gotta relax a second. And you gotta be pragmatic. And in some ways, they are right. Okay? And if we're not willing to admit that, they're not going to listen to us. But you, st so I, I would then come back to the metaphor of you're there with the gun and you have to kill the one person. And the other 99 live if you do it. But you see an opportunity to change the situation so that you won't have to kill that person. Even at, It may be at great personal risk to yourself, but there's a chance now. There's somehow the maniac let his guard down. Should you try to change the circumstance or should you still take the definite one saves 99? And I think what people would say is, the greater the opportunity for success, the greater the propensity to take the chance and try to save all of them while risking the 99. Makes basic sense. If you had a uh, only a cha one chance in a thousand of failing and 999 chances of success to save them all, and you made that calculation in your head, there's a very good chance, even with risk to your personal safety, you would take that risk to save all of them, not just the one. Now think about that. As that pertains to how we look at the state as a voluntarist. What we're saying, if we're pragmatists, if we're not purist assholes, is not that tomorrow morning there should be a voluntarist society. We wish there could be. But that if we don't have the goal to remove all theft, to remove all force against people who are doing nothing wrong, to remove all coercion, then our goal is not noble enough. Even if we can't get there in our own lifetimes, even if we can't get there in the lifetimes of our great-great-grandchildren, we should still be pursuing the society that can exist without force and coercion, that can exist under the non-aggression principle. Well, it can't work. So shouldn't we be trying to get as close to it as possible? Doesn't that mean we should be looking at every single individual situation where the state is using force and coercion and say to ourselves, is there a non-state-based, non-coercion-based, non-force-based solution to this problem? That's voluntarism. That's true voluntarism. Because we don't get to use force to overpower those who have control of the situation right now. We have to exist on parallel and present better solutions. And if we really believe our own words, that the market is a better solution, then given time, the market should be able to prove that. 
And I think there's a lot of people doing that just now. And I think there'll be a lot more in the future. And I think we're experiencing, again, I don't want to use the word. I'm, I'm, for today I'll use it because I'm making the comparison. Going forward, I'm just going to use the word voluntarism. So the person that comes in tomorrow that doesn't know any of this stuff yet doesn't get turned off. The same thing I'm advising you folks to use in your conversations. But um, it's techno-anarchism that's driving a lot of this. Creating these like things where people are, there's no way you can do this without government. Well, here's like five. Holy, we need the government to create. I mean, do you notice, do you notice this? When I was a, like a teenager and in my 20s, and I was like really toward the libertarian bent, and people always confuse libertarianism with anarchism, they'd always say one of the things they claim we need the government to do was to create money and to control value of the money. Do you notice that you don't ever hear anybody, people are like, we need more roads, we need more schools, we wouldn't have roads and schools without government. And, and pragmatists like me are always like, well, we could totally make the deal with you that government can take care of roads and schools and stop doing everything else. And then there's like the blank stare and then ma this and ma that, right? But they used to also say, without the government, who would make sure the money was worth anything? And, of course, the gold bugs would say, well, if we used gold, it would – and gold is not a very practical modern currency. It's just not. But since the advent of Bitcoin, have you noticed that argument just like went away like a fart in the wind? Why? Because it was it was made technologically irrelevant. I think that's where we're headed for a lot of things in the future. Technological irrelevancy of the state. But the state, like a dying beast, will not go away peacefully. And a dying beast is dangerous. We need to remember that. But I'm just going to suggest that those of you that are libertarians even, those of you who are not willing to go to the logical point of pure libertarianism which is anarchism that's really where it ends in other words all anarchists are lib all real anarchists are libertarians but not all libertarians are anarchists even i think libertarians that are you know of a libertarian mindset and and are minarchist libertarians very small government libertarians you'd actually get more people listening to you if you used the word voluntarism because it's really the same thing now The, 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 the person that's gone to tr true anarchism says, not only is that the goal, we believe we can get there. And the minarchist libertarian says, we may never get there, but that should be our goal. See? That's, that, that, that's how simple this is. That we should be approaching every problem we have with how do we solve it without the intervention and use of force and coercion and theft. And let's be honest. Taxes work. The system of taxation works for a lot of things. There's a lot of things we have in our lives today because the taxation systems exist. And our lives, in some ways, are far better than they would be if... Now, I'm not saying those things wouldn't be better, but if those things had never happened, if there were no roads in this country, the government did steal money and give it to private companies to build the roads. That's true. Would there be roads? Would they be... I don't know, but if there were no roads... You get what I'm saying, if you want to. We have to look at it and say, our children, even though I think government schools suck and are on their deathbeds, our children, if they want to be and if they have active, engaged parents, get a generally decent education out of the government school system. They can read. They can write. They can do basic math. The Common Core makes you question that. But they, they have an awareness that's around them. And there's other ways. I know there's other ways, but what I'm saying is these systems do produce results, and sometimes those results are positive and beneficial. 
our, 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 our challenge should not be that the results themselves are poor or not good enough or not sufficient. It should be that we could do as good or better in other ways that don't involve force and coercion. And when somebody says, how, you go, why don't you help me figure that out? Why don't we together pick one thing that seems insurmountable and see how many solutions we can come up with that don't involve force and coercion? It's an interesting way to have a conversation. It's an interesting way to think. And again, my question for you today is, are we all voluntarists now? And should we be? Should we be? Is it noble to at least seek the point at which we can exist as a society without stealing from each other? without using force and coercion to get our way? Is that a noble goal? Is it worthy of pursuit, even if we're only 1% successful in that pursuit? Anyway, if you like this show and the way it makes you think and challenges your preconceptions and you want to support it so that it's always here, there's a couple different ways to do that. And the painless way, the completely easy way, the way that doesn't cost you nothing, is when you're doing your shopping on Amazon, go to the survival or go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. Click a link, then you end up on Amazon. You do your Amazon shopping like you were going to do anyway. You go on with your life. You supported our show. It didn't cost you nothing. We'll also review an item every day. Today's item of the day is pretty cool. It's a book, and you can get either hard copy or on your Kindle. And i got to say, it's a book that I'm not really going to use much. But I did review it because I thought many people in this audience might. It's called, and you'll immediately, if you're a long-term listener, know why I'm not going to use it much. It's called Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day. I'm not a big bread eater, right? I'm, I try to keep the carbohydrates really, really low. But I know there's a lot of you people that are like, I don't care what Jack eats. I love bread. And you want bread in your life and bread in your family's life. And I got to admit, I'm not even that big on eating bread anymore. But the freaking smell of baking bread, my God. So one day, several months ago, in fact, I was looking at my sales reports from Amazon. And, and I can't see who buys what or whatever. I can see what's sold. And I see this book, and I'm like, five minutes a day, really? So I look at it, and I bought the Kindle version, and I read it, and I went, I think this would work. So I started talking to some people that have used this method, and it works really good. Basically, it's like Sunday night, you make up a bunch of this this dough this certain way, and then you pull off a portion each day during the week and pop it in the oven with a few other things you do to get really great results with it. And there's some a little bit of a learning curve and some specialized equipment, but once you get your system in place, it really is five minutes a day to make fresh baked bread and different types of it, even with the same base dough, every day over and over and over again. And here's how I feel about this. If you're going to eat bread, it would be best if you got organic flour, made your own bread, and used all the ingredients you knew where they came from instead of the garbage that they make bread out of in the store. If you start reading labels, there's a lot of garbage in bread. There really is. Okay. The problem with that recommendation is it sounds easy enough, but I remember my grandmother like working all day long to make bread. I remember my grandmother working like all weekend long when she made loaves for like everybody in the family um, for, for like Easter. We should make something called Pasca bread, which had a, a crucifix on it and it was egg based and it was a really cool bread. But like she would make a couple for, you know, the uncle, the us, and then the other grand, and the, and she would spend a weekend and make a bunch of loaves of bread. And I'm thinking, you know, it's not really practical for the person that works their ass off every day to come home and bake a loaf of bread. So I found this book. So if you love bread and the idea of fresh baked bread appeals to you, consider getting a copy of it and adopting what you're doing. And, and the beauty of it is, is like good organic flour is not very expensive. 
this will save you money over buying. You could make, make organic bread probably for less than you could buy garbage bread or about the same. And you could certainly make it for less than you could buy organic breads. And they're not the most available thing in the first place. And fantastic breads, not your wonder bread, right? Anyway, with that, just consider picking that up if you are a, a bread eater or you'd like to be uh, and you want to be a little bit healthier about it. Again, it's called Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. The song of the day today uh, was in a movie, and uh, it was mentioned in the in the history segment as, as well. It's called Sentimental Journey. It's by Les Brown and his orchestra, and the vocals are by none less than Doris Day. It's a really beautiful song, and it certainly typifies what people enjoyed about music during this time. And it's a very optimistic Outlook. And in 1945, after all the blood that was shed, all the lives that were lost, all of the, the lives that were disrupted, all of the destruction that occurred, in America at least, a sense of normalcy was returning. And it was time for a sentimental journey. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Decide to roam 
gotta take that sentimental journey, sentimental journey. 